Good evening. Can you hear me? Yes. Good evening, everyone, and welcome to the Central Library. It's good to see everyone. I'm Viola Sabandayo. I'm a board member of the Pratt Contemporaries. And on behalf of Pratt CEO Carla Hayden, I would like to welcome all of you to this very special edition of Writers Live series. Um, we appreciate you all being here tonight. Uh, it's a fabulous, fabulous night. Um, we, we promise that this is definitely going to be fun. And um, patrons like you, and um, along with our generous donors, make, make free author events like this possible for everyone to enjoy. Uh, we're honored and thrilled uh, to have our special guests here tonight. They're authors, they are reality stars, and of course they're farmers. Um, the fabulous Beekman boys. And I, I will say, come on in guys. <laughs> so I'm going to go off script just a little bit because um, <laughs> as they know we were talking earlier um, I'm a huge fan of Amazing Race and um, that's how I got introduced to them and was uh, rooting for them Quite, quite a bit, and I was very thrilled that they won Amazing Race, and it's been um, quite fun to watch them since then and, and all the things that they're doing, and I'm just um, overjoyed to be here with you guys tonight. So, yeah. um, so I know you're very eager to hear from them. Um, again, I want to thank our partners for tonight's event, um, Baltimore Greenworks. Um, this is part of their Sustainable Series, uh, Speaker Series. Um, I want to thank the members of the Pratt Contemporaries and all of their guests that are here tonight. So the Pratt Contemporaries are young professional friends of the Pratt Library. Um, we're really, really known for our big sellout event, which is the black and white party that we have at the end of January every year. So if you haven't been, it's, it's quite an exceptional event. Um, and I'm, I'm proud to say that I'm actually chairing the 2015 um, black and white party that will be here in Central Library. Um, so make sure, make sure you mark your calendars now. It's um, Saturday, January 24th. Um, so speaking of the Pratt Contemporaries, the other thing is that we're encouraging everyone to um, support Baltimore children so that they can enjoy a fun and memorable summer. Um, by sponsoring a child for the library summer reading program. And in fact, tonight, the fabulous uh, Beekman boys have each uh, pledged to support a child uh, for the summer reading program. So we encourage all of you <laughs> to do the same. Yes. Um, and um, so just so you know, that $60 really does provide just a, an amazing summer's worth of programming for children and prevent that summer slide so that they have an amazing program through the summer and, and can keep on target for the next school year. Um, it's really easy to do. You can go online. You can make your, your um, donation at prattlibrary.org slash summer. Um, and it's just an amazing program. The other thing is that we do have other authors lined up um, coming to the Pratt Library, um, including in the next couple of weeks, we have Jennifer Weiner, who's um, talking about her new novel, I'll Fall Down, and that'll be on June 18th. Um, but you can always go to the Pratt Library and see all the things that we have coming up, the events. It's, a, it's an amazing program, and you can visit that at prattlibrary.org. Pratt 
Um, it's also on Facebook and Twitter. To introduce them, Roswell, did you want to say anything else? I have a whole spiel. <laughs> After me? Yes. <laughs> you guys are amazing, and thank you for being here tonight. Thank you. All right. Thank you, Beulah. Um, I'm acting like Phil Donahue here because um, I'm also going to be moderating tonight's event, so I get to play Andy Cohen or uh, Jimmy Fallon here and be um, talk show host for the night. Um, I know most of you, are, as Beulahs, are very eager to hear from them, and you're not here to listen to us, so I'm going to sum up my introduction to them, hopefully in 100 words or less. So here's their story. Two New York City guys, one working for Martha Stewart, the other an advertising executive, goes on a weekend trip to upstate New York and find themselves buying a mansion with a farm. Both left their jobs, starred in their own reality show, The Fabulous Beacon Boys, won the amazing race, and now are full-time farmers and authors with a fabulous lifestyle brand and growing empire. How was that? <laughs> now, they are authors of several books, as you know, The Bacolic Plague, The Beekman 1802 Heirloom Cookbook, The Beekman 1802 Heirloom Dessert Cookbook, and the new one, of course, The Beekman 1802 Vegetable Cookbook. So please welcome to Baltimore and the Pratt Library, the fabulous Beekman boys, Brent Ridge and Josh Kilmer Purcell. Thank you, guys. Thank you. Thanks. <laughs> See, I've got my uh, cookbook all marked with little post-it notes. Now, the first thing I have to do is get a picture of the audience for Facebook. Oh, please yeah, do. Right. Yes. Because if it's not on Facebook, it didn't happen. And of course, you know, if you're tweeting or Facebooking, um, their Twitter handles at Beekman 1802 Boys. Yeah. Yes. All right. So when I tell you go, everybody look really excited, okay? <laughs> On your mark, get set, go. Excited, excited. Good job. Good job. <laughs> oh, Brent, let's do this. Um, because you need to be sitting here because the light oh, should be on you. And okay. I'm like, I could stay in the sun. Oh, no, he looks better I in the dark. <laughs> Trust me on that. I could stay in the shadow. He's, he's right about that. <laughs> okay. All right. First, I know, as we were talking about, welcome to Baltimore. Is this Thank your first you. trip to Baltimore? Oh, no. No, um, I've been here in the past, but I was trying to, I can't, I don't remember when I was here in the past. But I was. I was here Which, for the first time when I was about eight years old. Back, I guess Baltimore had some days that were not so good. And um, I saw my, I had some relatives who lived here in one of the row houses, and um, I saw my first gang fight uh, in Baltimore, which, you know, I grew up in the very rural North Carolina, so that was like big time for me, to see, you know, to see people fighting the gang. Wow, I didn't um, know that. I'm learning yeah, about you, Brent. Yeah. Had my first uh, taste of Old Bay seasoning um, during that trip, which I love, yep, and my first uh, Maryland crab, so... Delicious. Nice. Would you integrate um, Old Bay into your cookbook someday? Maybe. Th we might. We Maybe. might. Maybe. Are we allowed? Air, air, I don't know oh, if we're course, allowed. Okay. Trust me, McCormick will go nuts. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, first, I also want to greet you guys an advanced happy wedding anniversary. I know that's oh, yeah, coming up. Yep. How's June 28th. I think I'll stick it out. Yeah. <laughs> we might make it. We, yeah, we'll see. <laughs> As, and as we were chatting, you know, everybody's familiar with your story now, how you bought the mansion and um, you became like um, accidental farmers. Mm -hmm. How's it going now? It's going great, but there's one thing about your introduction that was wrong. Oh, it no. made us look better, but it was wrong. Um, we, we did not leave our jobs. And that's actually a really key part of our story is that we, you know, we, we went upstate. I always like to say we were those ob obnoxious Manhattanites that used to go to upstate New York on the weekends and, and bother the locals and buy their apples, which they just imported from Washington to sell to us. 
But so we 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 bought the farm as a second home, um, and that was in 2007. And you know, at the time, the the real estate market. Does everybody remember 2007 when they were, they were handing out mortgages on the corner and you could just get one for nothing? So we cashed out everything we had. Uh, we we bought this farm that had no animals in it. It was an empty farm, and we were like, you know, a million dollars for an empty farm. What a bargain! <laughs> and uh, and then in 2008, we both lost our jobs. So we lost our jobs within a month of each other, and that's that's really when we started our company in earnest. So it it would be, would have been much nicer if we had left our jobs, but but. I don't think we would have started our business or any, any of what we were doing if, if the recession hadn't Which hit. Which actually leads to my other question. I know that's when you started the mortgage lifter pasta sauce. Yes. Well, that was that was 2012. Yeah, so we had started our company um, in 2008, really 2009, um, so right before even the Fabulous Beatman Boys show started. And uh, we started making anything that we could with goat milk. You know, because if life gives you lemons, you make lemonade. If life gives you goat milk, what are you going to make? You know, you make soap, you make cheese, you make yogurt, you make caramel sauce, you make fudge. Anything you can make from goat milk, we are making it. And, um, and But even then, you know, with a million-dollar mortgage and all the capital expenses of starting up a farm, um, you know, we, we couldn't make a go of it. I mean, you know, we were just drowning in the mortgage. And so that was really the premise of uh, the Fabulous Beatman Boys show is our struggle to try to make it work. And so Josh had eventually uh, gotten a job offer back in the city. And at that point, we had been together for about 12 years. Um, and we're like, well, you know, yes, take the job back in the city. That'll help us cover the mortgage while, you know, I'm here getting the farm and business up and running. And Brent promised me one year. I said, it's just going to be a year of one sacrifice. One year, he said. We called it a year of sacrifice. Well, that turned five into five years later. Five years of sacrifice. <laughs> um, and it really wasn't until. Um, the amazing race that we were able to pay off our mortgage and so, charge to the farm. So we had time. started. So the mortgage of deposit sauce. So we started before the amazing race called. We we planted out a field. Our last ditch effort was we planted out a field of these tomatoes called the mortgage lifter tomatoes. Anybody has anybody ever grown them? So they're a 1929 variety. They helped a, a farmer um, in West Virginia. He he bred them and they helped him pay off his farm mortgage uh, in the Great Depression. So he called them the mortgage lifter tomatoes. And so we're always trying to think, oh, what's going to be that one product that's going to sell so well that we pay off our mortgage? And so we thought, oh, we're going to grow out that tomato. We'll come up with a pasta sauce recipe and jar it, call it the mortgage lifter sauce. And that's going to be the thing we sell so much of that it pays off our mortgage. Well, so we planted about a half an acre of the tomato plants and um, started working on the recipe. Then we got offered to run the amazing race. Well, people know how that ended, right? And um, so we came back. The race is run in about three weeks. So we came back from running the race in time to harvest the tomatoes. And so we're like, okay, we already, of course, knew we had won. No one else did, but we did. And so we continued uh, developing the pasta sauce and jarring it. But now 25% of all the profits go to help other small farms pay down their mortgages. And so we every year, so we've, we've had it out for a year now. And so we just gave out the first $10,000 lift. That's what we call them. And so we had farms who could self-nominate themselves from all over the country. Uh, and the farm that won was actually... Um, oh, great. It was in upstate New York. In upstate New York. And um, they were great. They had been in business. Because the goal of the Mortgage Lifter Project is to uh, not just give a handout to farms that have been dwindling for the past 20 years. Uh, we really wanted to highlight people who, who were small farms that had great business ideas, 
um, that were had shown some degree of success that they could run this business because then whatever award we give out, and we hope there's a day when we're giving out a million dollar lift, you know, um, that other small farms can learn from what those people have done. So it's kind of like um, uh, shining a light on the best practices in small farming. So this, this farm that won had, was actually growing. They've been farming for a few years. They've been struggling, and they they'd had, but they were growing a great farm. But they had no tractor. They were doing it all with a pickup truck. They had a pickup truck and a, like a t rototiller on the back that they had fashioned. So this, but they had, were growing a farm. They were doing really well. So we yeah, even even they had been in business. They've been in business for about seven years, and they had grown their business last year because we asked everyone what their revenue for the year was, so we could see if they were actually successful at business. And they had grown their revenue to about sixty thousand dollars with a truck and an old rototiller plowing their land. And so they're using the lift for uh, to buy their first tractor. So. We're expecting so big they were the first winners. No, working for a nonprofit, we completely admire you guys giving back to you know to the public and to everybody that you understand. So we really admire that. Oh, so, can I say one update about course. Mortgage Lifter? Because uh, I mean, but this I don't, is you can't say it. Can you say yeah, it? Yeah, we can say it. Yeah. This is because obviously we're very. Nobody, nobody's going to tell, right? Are we're you, very. They can tell. They can start spreading the word now. Really? Okay. The, uh, the um, we're very passionate about this project, and ultimately we want to see Mortgage Lifter become like Newman's own, you know, so there's many, many different items, all with the same philosophy of giving back 25% to small farms. And we're very excited because Target has just uh, agreed to bring in Mortgage Lifter to 250 stores in October, and then 15, all 1,500 stores next spring. So if any of you are Target shoppers, um, you know, please go when it comes out and, and buy some there. That sounds fantastic. Now, speaking of the farm, I know a lot of people here are probably thinking about it. How's Farmer John? Farmer John's doing great. He's doing great. Well, we did just get an email from him today. I know. He wants to have a uh, meeting says, tomorrow. Let's have a meeting when you I get never, back. So. Here's, d d people watch the, the, the Five Years Speaking Boys, right? Farmer John is Eeyore. Like, let me, it is a direct comparison and 100% accurate metaphor. So like, no matter, we could have the this, this sunshiniest, be most beautiful day in the farm, and he would spot the cloud on the horizon coming. Um, but, but obviously, we love him for it. And he's like... You know, we half of our success is Farmer John, and we and we always try to to um, talk about that when we're in groups because we didn't know how to farm. We had no idea how to start how many a farm. Goods do you have now? now we have 130, 120, 20 something. Um, and we have about 300 goats born every year because um, you have to keep breeding them, of course, to keep milking them. Uh, and John, we in the very beginning we're like, yeah, John, we're gonna help you milk the goats, and then about. Two days into it, it wasn't even our decision; it was the goats' decision. They're like, "Yeah, no, no, don't don't touch me, don't touch me there." And um, yeah, they formed like this union yeah, and everything. It was really and awkward. Like, Not your hands. Um, but that's but that's one of the most valuable lessons we learned um, about uh, about farming and communities communities in general. Coming from big city advertising life, big city media life with Martha and all that. We went up there and we're like, oh, we're gonna learn how to farm and oh, that's gotta be easy and you know, right? Farmers, it's so bucolic and all that. Um, but that wasn't our skill set, it just wasn't. And so we weren't really able to help our neighbors at all by farming. We were able to help them by marketing. You know, they taught us how to farm and they, they taught us all these skills that we needed and we helped them market their products. And that's, that's when it really started to gel together and grow this company called Beekman. Now, speaking of urban um, and farming, um, you know, Baltimore is an urban city like New York City. And after living in New York City for all these years, you understand how the constraints of urban farming. What's your mm -hmm. advice for folks here in Baltimore about it? Just do it. Find a space, find some dirt. Yeah, do what you can. And, and, and 
even if you're not doing it yourself, then support those people who are. And we always say, you know, obviously we know that people have different amounts of budget, you know, for their food budget, you know, and so if you just commit, you know, every week I'm going to spend $5 at the farmer's market or $10 at the farmer's market, it may not sound like a lot, it's just a very small percentage of your food budget, but if everybody in this room said, oh, every week I'm going to spend $5 at the farmer's market, it would make a huge difference. And so that's what we always tell people. I, and it's very rare that people actually own goats. Um, I know um, we have a few members of our audience here. Like, well, is there a big goat rental market here? Well, in that we were Baltimore? just talking about it uh. earlier. What's your advice for folks? And um, it, 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 it blows my mind a little bit that there's this untapped um, goat industry that, um, <laughs> that I'm fully unaware of. Goats are very trendy right now, aren't they? They, they seem to be. I know. Um, well, they're very social animals. Um, but I think that if you, I mean, you can have goats as a pet. Uh, you know, you can have, particularly like the, some of the dwarf varieties, they're great, great pets. Um, but if you're going to go into the goat business, think about what your business is going to be. Uh, because it, it is very difficult. You know, if you if you have a dairy, you have to, you know, there's no um, kind of collection system like we have with cow dairies. So you really have to figure out what is going to be your value add to the product. You know, like us, when we make everything we can out of goat milk. Uh, but really think about what your business is going to be. I mean, this is the... Any, how many people work in some sort of business field in here, like some sort of managerial business? You have to do budgets and things. This is what so, was so amazing to me. Moving from New York City, like I said before, you think, oh, farming's easy. You just get up and you milk a goat and you, know, and you have fresh milk and eggs and all that. It is the hardest business in the world. It's not just labor. The labor is hard enough. But when you think about it, John starts breeding his goats in September. So if you think supply and demand and all the things that you're trying to forecast for your different businesses, he breeds his goats in September. The goats are born in February. So that so he's got to determine how much milk he's going to need in February. So then we start producing. Then the cheese has to age. Then we have to find places to sell it. So we're not selling it until the next, you know, August, July, August, September. So he's he's planning, you know, by just mating goats, he's got to plan a supply and demand a year in advance, a year plus in advance. It's one of the most difficult industries. And then once you start milking a goat, you can't be like, yeah, you know, I'm sorry, Dottie, you know, I, we don't have any, we didn't sell any milk, turn it off. You know, like, <laughs> once, there's no supply and demand, it's just supply, <laughs> you know. Um, so it's a very complicated industry, and I think we've romanticized farming and agriculture, and there's a real danger in farmers markets and things that you think that that, that farmer behind that table every Saturday has the best life in the world and how wonderful and you know the kids get to run in the fields it's a really tough life and we have to find a way for small farmers to grow because it's not just going to be farmers market it's not just going to be making two hundred dollars a week at a farmers market they have to they want to send their kids to college so we have to find a way to get small farms into the bigger food distribution system and that's that's part of what we're trying to do with mortgage lifter so that's for all for you to remember when you go back to under the under the Falls Way and to Waverly over the weekend, that there's a big story behind everybody who's there. Now, um, let's talk about your brand. It's expanding. It started with a soap. Um, where do you guys go from here? And how do you decide what item to add to your line? Well, if anyone goes to our website and, and looks at the online mercantile, they'll say, what an odd collection of things this is. Because really, everything that we've designed thus far are things that we either wanted or things that we needed. Uh, and that was really the impetus of everything, that, every product. It's like, what are we using? Or what our neighbors were making. That's right. And now we, and so we, as you said, we started out with the soaps. And um, then the, Deb, the woman who first showed us how to make the soap, she's now our chief soap making officer. 
um, she said, oh, well, have you met Karen Tenney? She's this amazing, she has these uh, uh, amazing antique looms in her living room, and she weaves. And so we're like, oh, no, we have to meet her. So we went to meet her, spent a day learning about the looms, and we're like, oh, well, if we design something, would you um, create it for us? Would you produce it for us? And she said, of course, I'd love to. So she became our first artisan. And then she said, well, have you met Michael, the blacksmith in the next village? And we're like, no, we'd love to meet him. And so we went and met him, and then we started doing products with him. And then he's like, well, have you met the woodturner? And then have you met the, you know. And so now we work with 42 artisans. Um, and it's just, it's, it's such a great, um, uh, a great experience for us because obviously we love doing what we're doing. And it's very gratifying to work with all these artisans um, so that they can make a living doing what they love to do too. And, um, it, you know, well, I, I would say it's it, it, it's the worst business plan in the world because we we have we have no plan. I don't know how we're we're growing, but we are. And but the one thing that always gives me sort of confidence is that our business was modeled after William Beekman, who built our farm. And he built he was a, the biggest merchant in the area he, and the biggest farmer. He had a farm. He had a mercantile on the property. He had his Beekman Mercantile. And you know he just did business the same way we're doing business. He just, you know, my, my, my neighbor's growing wheat. Here's a neighbor over here who's growing cows. Here's apple cider. Here's this. And he just had them all in, in his store. So well, I, I always go back. I'm like, well, if it worked for him, maybe it'll work for us, and, and we'll just keep adding things on as they go. Well, let's talk about cooking and your cookbook here. So uh, I've got to be honest. I love to browse your website, as you mentioned. Um, I actually tried some recipes. Yes, folks, I do cook. <laughs> I, did, I did try that pineapple mango lamb chops. And oh, yeah. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I just love taking a picture of it to show off to people. Yeah. <laughs> really good. So which one of you is the real cook? Oh, Josh, that's a good question. Josh is the, uh, Josh is the better I'm technician. I'm the day-to-day -day cook. Yeah, he's, mo he's got more skills. I am the more creative in coming up with the idea. So no. I came up with the idea, and he executes it. And Yeah, and Brent's, Brent's Sometimes Brent, executes in a good Brent's way, sometimes the bad execution. always more creative than me because I'm the one I, I'm the one that comes home and cooks every night I like I make sure there's food actual food on the table because he would just eat bread um, and I uh, do love sandwiches he does love sandwiches does it but Tomato when he decides to cook it's like a day long it's like a Sunday afternoon and it's just huge and it's it's like root beer and fennel and you know it's all this stuff so he's more creative than than I am but and, and and honestly the way well the the first two cookbooks uh, and the way they came they were called the heirloom cookbook, was that we started with recipes that we had grown making with our families. And um, and we believe that recipes are kind of living things, so they adapt over time. And th I think that's what most cooks do, is that they kind of remember some skills that they've learned from their family. And then whatever they open up the refrigerator, say, oh, I've got a chicken in here, and I've got some pepper in here, and like, what can I make with that? And so that's really how the books, all of the recipes in the books come about is, um, you know, what are we harvesting? Like, oh, we just have five pounds of kale that came out of the garden. Well, how can we use that five pounds of kale? And so that's how the recipes are developed. And some of them wind up on the website. Um, some of them wind up in the cookbooks. Some of them turn out terribly. And we post about those on Facebook, too, you know, the disasters. Um, but, you know, we, we think, you know, for cooking for us, it's just very experimental. Um, and then we work with a wonderful woman named Sandy Gluck, who got laid off uh, from Martha Stewart the same time I did. Um, and she is our um, recipe tester. So when we come up with the ideas, then she takes each recipe and then tests them three times to make sure that you can replicate them, because sometimes you can't. Uh -huh. 
Um, and so she, to us, she is like the uh, the brains She's behind everything. Right? Yeah. She's the brains behind everything that we do. Well, you know, most of you have started browsing through this cookbook today. Um, I've already kind of left some notes. I should say this is a very beautiful it's all cookbook. color coded. Uh, it is. You know. I do think it's our best one. What so do far. the colors mean? Please just. Like just what you colors. had on your desk. <laughs> oh, okay. That's right now. But I mean, if you browse through it, there's these amazing pictures of, you know, from pictures from the farm, pictures of the food, and I love how everything's divided up by season as well. And I love the quotes um, by, um, you know, from presidents and authors. Um, you know, we're huge here about, you know, if you quote an author. Uh, mm. But I also, you know, what I admire the most is there's a section here where uh, folks could write their family recipes, like you were right. talking yes. about. Um, At, what's the purpose of that? Okay, so when we were first doing the cookbooks, when we were first approached about doing the very first cookbook, the heirloom cookbook, uh, we actually turned the publisher down because we have 300 cookbooks and probably 80% of them we've never cooked a single recipe from. And, you know, you can get any recipe you want online. You can come to our website and get recipe. And we're like, the world doesn't need another cookbook. And, you know, the publisher was very persistent. And so we said, okay, well, if we're going to do a cookbook, we really actually want it to be one that people use. And so, um, that's and then, then we're kind of like, what, what is it? What are the cookbooks that we use? And they're generally the ones that either were passed down to us from our mother, or we picked up in some store somewhere that has writing in the side, you know, in the, in the marginalia. And that, that is, I mean, to me, that's a sign of a good cookbook if somebody cared enough to use it and write about it. So we're like, if we're if we're going to do a cookbook, it's going to be a good cookbook, and somebody's going to be able to open it and see that it's a good cookbook. So that's so we have all these spaces. For people to write their notes. And then after each section, each season, all of our books are divided up by season, uh, we always leave blank spaces so that you can write your family's own heirloom recipes in there. And they pass it down. So, right. So like, you know, this cookbook would survive the next couple That's of years. That's right. And it it actually, better. It in better. the front of every uh, book, you'll see, if you open up the, the cover, there's always um, a place where it's the first generation to own this book, and then you can write in the subsequent generations, because we really do want it to be a book that gets passed down with your handwriting in it. Now, I was thinking, um, I love how this is all divided, I guess, we were talking about, by season. Like, if you had to cook something this weekend, what's, like, the freshest ingredient that you could cook this time of spring? Well, well I don't know. I'm not sure. You're a little ahead delayed. of us. But yeah. I think you guys probably have sweet peas in the market. So we've got, there's a great sweet pea soup in there. There's a wonderful um, rhubarb and oh, chicken. chicken masala. Uh, masa uh, yeah, garam masala recipe that's using rhubarb in a savory course. I think those are my favorite spring ones right now. There's, There's a nice one, pea shoot um, one. Oh, and you got to tell about the arugula. The, yeah, your teacup jello salad. Oh, with see, arugula. I didn't even know he was going to go to that. I know. One. So you're kind of unselling it now. Uh, <laughs> so, but it looks so good. <laughs> the teacup arugula salad. So this is okay, a thing. Okay, hold on one second. No, 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 hold no. On no. Second. no hold on, I've hold on one second. Hold on one second. Raise of hands. How many of you in this room, if you heard, oh, teacup congealed salad, would want to make it? Okay, okay thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Okay. All right. Well, no, so here's the deal. Here's the deal. So Brent, in the recipes, even though I probably cook more, you know, day to day than Brent, Brent has a disproportionate amount of recipes in the cookbooks because he has, he's Southern and his family has all these great, you know, heirloom recipes in his family. I'm Midwestern and we have Jello. <laughs> so, so I've been fighting the last two cookbooks. I'm like, can we please have a Jello recipe? in one of these cookbooks, and, but I had to come up with one that would pass muster. And, and so this is it. It's actually really good. It's ricotta cheese and uh, arugula and lime juice. It's, it's very it sophisticated. Is, they would never it serve it in Wisconsin. Amazing. And uh, hold up the book. And 
and we had to make sure we took an exceptionally beautiful picture to encourage people to make this recipe <laughs> because it is it really is an amazing it's kind of like a um, an intermezzo like you, you can use it like a sorbet and cleanse the palate it's it's amazing it sounds very summery too it's good it's delicious yeah now, I mean, I, I get caught up with this too. You know, I, I go to the grocery store, I go to the farmer's market, and I find myself buying too many vegetables that I actually needed. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. What's your advice of um, what I could do with it? Should I can it? Should I dry it? Should I just cook them all in one, you know, afternoon? Um, I, I think, so, I mean, that's, first of all, that's why we did the cookbook the way we did. So spring, summer, winter, fall. We've, we've done that with all our books. Because you go to market, you you find, you whatever's there, you buy the cheapest thing that's freshest, and so you need a place to start. So that's why we divide the cookbook in seasons. Um, so, but the other thing with vegetables, I am such a big proponent of just roasting anything. It doesn't, even lettuce. I mean, just throw it under a hot broiler with olive oil and, and hot red pepper, and it's going to be amazing. And then I do, I do like phased roasting a lot of weeknights. So it, you start with the harder vegetables. You just turn the oven on. Start with your harder vegetables, root vegetables. Put them in. Then ten on a cook, cookie sheet, and then put it, then take it out, and then uh, put your softer vegetable, your next softer, and then finish up with like an on diver, uh, all in the same tray, so you're not getting anything dirty. But it, then they're all cooked through at the same time. I feel like we should have bought some vegetables and brought a stove in here. I know. I would stuff. totally do a cooking next demo. time. Next oh, time, and my other thing time. is beer. Beer is the most. I just like beer. I just, <laughs> how many people like beer? <laughs> um, but roast, roasting vegetables with with beer, almost any vegetable. If you pour in just one bottle, if, if you fill up like a small uh, cookie tr cookie tray with chunked one-inch cuts, and you pour in a bottle of, of beer, Guinness usually is is great on it. By the time the beer has reduced to the syrupy point, the vegetable is generally done. And or even uh, root it's, beer. It's amazing. I mean, root gingery root beer that, makes yeah. a great glaze. But there's a great recipe the in the book with version of it. Yes, yes. <laughs> there's a great recipe in the book with rutabaga with a Guinness glaze. Mm -hmm. And I know people have seen rutabaga in here, like, what am I going to do with that vegetable? But now, now you can do it. Now, I mean, I, I should say though, um, your story uh, kind of resonates more like a maybe a lesson for a lot of people. People could only only dream about like following their dream and following their passion, like you know, leaving the comfortable job what they have, and you know, taking that big leap of faith. Do you recommend that for everyone? No. <laughs> Um, I, you know, because you know, obviously, because the way we um, style our website and the stories we tell, it does romanticize it a lot. I mean, if you I read, if whenever you read, I see the word play, overnight success in a in a newspaper story, it uh, burns me to no end. If you read Josh's book, if you call it play, you kind of see kind of the harder aspects of it. But uh, from a lifestyle perspective, we do kind of romanticize it a little bit, um, and I think. You know, people always say, oh, I want your life. And I'm like, well, you probably really don't because hard work. we wouldn't have this life had we um, not lost our jobs and actually had to create something. And I always say that desperation is the best motivator um, because we were on the brink of losing it all, you know. And um, had we not really pulled ourselves up by our bootstraps, we would have lost it. And I mean, I, I will go on record, and we've done it before. You, I can guarantee you, you cannot go out and buy a 20-acre farm and grow vegetables and have goats and make a living. I'm telling you that right now, it's not going to work. And that is everyone's dream. Um, and and it's not going to work. You have there has to be a twist on it. There has to be you have to find a way to add value to that to that process to do something different than everybody else. Um, or have a trust fund. Yes, I mean, you know. or have a trust fund. Or, but, but that is a good point. You you can't just leave it all behind. You have to part of if you're like us. If you're going to the country to do that sort of thing, 
the valuable thing you're bringing to the table is what is is the thing that you most want to get rid of your contacts in the city the job you know the job you had so if one person stays behind and works for a paycheck or you continue to work part time but use the contacts you have to help that farm that's honestly the only way it's going to work i don't think i've ever heard of anybody just dropping off the grid and and making a living they all come back on the grid like 3 years later I know a lot of you want to start asking some questions. So if you have a question, just uh, fall in line and use this microphone. Um, while you're deciding to come up here, uh, just come up here because we're podcasting the event, so we need your voice. Um, while she's coming up, I've got a question from Twitter here from at Craig0511. He says, hi, Beekman1802 boys. Um, huge fan. Brent, do you still have contact with Martha Stewart? What does she think of your brand and products? Thanks. Well, obviously, she's very jealous. <laughs> um, <laughs> No, she really is, but she, because um, she always likes to tell people, I discovered them, you know, and she kind of did. I mean, she, she did. when, when I, because obviously I was still working there when we first saw the farm, and I took her, and I remember the day, like, taking her the real estate brochure and saying, look at this farm. She's like, you have to buy it, and, um, but she's been very supportive of our company, you know, um, when we first started making the soap, um, I kind of had to go back to the company with my hat in my hand and say, Martha, please let us come on the show and make the soap. Um, and so really, we launched our company on her show. Uh, and she's been very supportive. She was, um, she was at our wedding last year. Um, and it was funny because uh, some of you weren't at the, the uh, little reception right before we came down here. Uh, but he blanked on Josh's name when he was introducing us. And uh, that's funny only because uh, Martha always forgets Josh's name. And, uh, and, and I think it's kind of passive aggressive. Kind of. Because. Um, well, we were doing. So, we, yeah, the last time we were doing an interview on our radio show, a week after the wedding. So she was just at our house. She was just at our wedding. And this is this is what it sounded like. So we, we we start the interview, and then she and then she says, "Okay, we're going to take a commercial break, and we're going to be right back with my good friend Dr. Brent Ridge." And <laughs> and I had to say my own name. I'm like, Josh, you were just at my wedding. At least I'm in good company. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Maybe I should sign up for Match.com along with. Her. Exactly. Anyway, we've got a question from the audience. Um, I'm really excited about this book. Uh, I was going through it, and I'm from New England, and these look like fiddleheads. Mm-hmm. Fiddlehead ferns. Okay. I don't see any recipe in here. And the reason yep. why I'm saying this is I have a 95-year-old father, and when these came out, a couple, when I was home, he made me run out and get pork and potatoes. Is this how you cook them? Oh, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Sautéing them. I mean, yes, we, we cook fiddlehead ferns every year but when when doing the cookbook which is going to have a more national audience a lot of people can't get fiddlehead ferns right. so we don't, and we have a rule like so for us to become an heirloom recipe there are three criteria it has to be delicious of course it has to be easy to make and uh, it has to have ingredients that you can find mm-hmm. and so we don't like to put any recipe in the book where people can't get the ingredient so that's so why can, can you get i mean this was my friend's question too. Mm-hmm. Can you get them here in Maryland? See, I don't sure. know. Sure, I think oh. yeah. No, I'm, I don't I'm know. Convinced you Does can. anyone know? You can. You can. Yeah. You can get fiddlehead. Yeah, it's just because we went. I had to go yeah. over to uh, an island to get these for my father. Yeah. <laughs> no, they're. <laughs> they have a giant. They wow. Do. They have them at giant. <laughs> and I believe, I believe, I believe See, it's that neighbors if you go helping to neighbors, our, right here. 
on our you. on our website you can search for fiddlehead and we have at least one recipe for fiddlehead on the website you know i tell all my friends all this kind of stuff from new england and they look at me like um we validate your fiddlehead firm. Yeah. <laughs> thank you so much. Thank you. I love the word fiddleheads. It's like right? you slipped that. Oh, fiddleheads. Oh, fiddleheads. Yeah. <laughs> like fiddle DD. Exactly. We do have a question from Facebook as well from Dave Walters. He says, I was wondering, how do you get kids to eat their veggies? Oh, <laughs> start a garden. Yeah, actually, the introduction to the book uh, actually tells a story. Um, two summers ago, we had a friend come up from the city. And um, it was her first visit to the farm. She had a four-year-old son, and they were walking around the farm, the garden, vegetable garden. And the little boy was just picking things up and, you know, eating them, like, you know, nasturtium and, you know, pea and you know, carrot and radish and just, you know, eating them. And it was um, like double fisting vegetables. And then his mom, <laughs> and then his mom's like, or no, it was his dad, yeah. said, oh, it's so funny because we cannot get him to eat his vegetables at home. And the little boy just stopped immediately in his Froze. track, and he's like. These are vegetables. <laughs> and, you know, I think a lot of, you know, it's how we condition kids to think, you know, that they don't like something. Um, but in, in one, that was one of the reasons that we want to do this book because I think vegetables do sometimes require a hard sell for not even kids, you know, even adults. And um, so we really wanted to create recipes that push whatever vegetable is the primary vegetable in it to the forefront. And so whoever you serve it to, even if they say, oh, I don't like zucchini. Well, you're going to like this recipe that has zucchini. And, and and the other thing for kids is bring them to the farmer's market um, and, and introduce them to the farmers. Because like farmers are rock stars to the Fisher Price set. You know, like they are, you know, they're, they're like policemen, firemen, astronauts, and farmers. So if you bring them to the farmer's market and you get them to meet the farmers and lick, let them pick out the things that they want, um, then they're definitely going to eat them. On the other, uh, the flip side of it, uh, we also got a question that um, how do you encourage um, people who live alone, sounds a little sad there for a second, but, uh, <laughs> to cook for themselves? Um, you know, because when you cook, usually you're cooking like for six people or mm -hmm. more. So, I mean, there's no greater gift that you can give to yourself than a good meal. I mean, it doesn't, um, you know, it doesn't matter if you're with somebody or not with somebody. There's, to me, there's such a meditative process about cooking that just says the day is ending. Um, I can't really imagine what you would fill that time with if you weren't cooking for yourself. I mean, watching television or something, it just doesn't, it's not the same. So, um, or find another single person and cook, trade yeah, off. I mean, sure. you know, I mean, I, I love leftovers. And I mean, I think probably 70% of the time, my breakfast is what was left over from dinner the night before. So, and you can take it for lunch the next day. There's really, if it's a single person and they're saying, oh, I'm single, so I'm not going to cook, well, that's just an excuse because they don't want to cook. Really. Now, um, and they're never going to find anyone. <laughs> no. They're going to be lonely Gosh. forever. <laughs> Advice for the lovelorn. Now, um, I, I, I believe. The Amazing Race has already done an all-star episode. Would you guys be willing to come back if they do that and win another million dollars? God, we get that. We get that question a lot, and I never. I my answer changes every day. It was the single worst experience of my life. <laughs> Absolutely, except for that last second when we won, um, which well, was the single best experience. You had a good crying face too on TV. Oh, I, I know. Oh, it was scary. That the ending. Um, 
But no, I mean, it, was, it was grueling. People don't realize in The Amazing Race, it's only three weeks. That whole thing is only three weeks, and you're not, it's not, it's not about the jumping off and the eating weird things. And, you know, you reach middle age, and those things don't really frighten you anymore because you're almost, you're halfway dead anyway. So, <laughs> but the, but it's the thing of not knowing where you're going to go to bed that night or not knowing where you're going to have dinner or not knowing if, if you're going go to go, if you're going to have a bed, if you're going to be able to wash your clothes, you wash clothes in the sink. So actually having no routine at all for three weeks was the most grueling part about it. I still have horrible nightmares, like at least once a week. Yes. He would do it. He, it was nothing to you. No. <laughs> so every week I, and I was looking forward to your show every week. So is there going to be a season three? No. Because so, I need to see Pocus Bob. I know. You can catch her on the goat cam. She's on the live cam. See, you yeah. can watch her. Well, uh, well, there was a wedding special that was produced, uh, which uh, you can get on Amazon. You can stream it or buy the DVD. And uh, that was really the series finale of the Fabulous Speakman Boys um, for a couple of reasons. One, um, that story was kind of like the whole – tension of, of that story was the fish out of water and us living apart and us trying to make a go of it. Well, that's a harder story to tell after you've just won a million dollars, you know? And um, so the, now we're just, I mean, we're taking meetings all the time with people who want to pitch show ideas to us. But, you know, we have to think about our company and what's right for the company and, you know, what reflects well on the brand and our partners that we work with. Uh, and most of the ideas that we get pitched are very sensational, you know, like, yeah, like divorce. Oh, are you guys going to split up? Are you guys going to adopt a baby? Are you going to adopt three babies? Yeah. Um, so, I mean, and that's what's on. I mean, we were so proud of Fabulous Beacon Boys. You know, it wasn't the, the hugest rating getter. You know, it was, it was a very solid show. But people loved it, and we loved it, and we were really proud of it. And when we were first offered that show, um, we didn't set out. We didn't pitch it. We didn't. We had no plans on being on television at all. Um, but when they came to us, um, because we we watched reality TV like everybody else, we were really wary. And and we said we had to get assurances from the production team and the network. We said you can make as much fun of us as you want. We are novice farmers. We are two gay city guys trying to learn how to farm. That's funny. We fall down in manure and all that. So that's fine. But we said you cannot make fun of our village and our neighbors, because you just see how, how that happens. You just see, like, oh, local yokels, no teeth, no this, whatever. And we said, you, you, you can't do that, you know. And, uh, and they didn't. And that's, what I think, what turned it into a really sweet show, was that it was this whole town really down on its luck, um, struggling to get by, and yet we all worked together really well to, throw, uh, to paint barns together and throw harvest festivals and things. It was a really sweet show. Unfortunately, nobody really wants to air sweet shows anymore. People do want to watch them. But none of the networks seem to want to air them anymore. Could you give us a quick update on how everyone's doing back home? In Sharon Springs? Yes. Oh, Sharon Springs is amazing. Uh, there are new businesses. How many new businesses do we have now? Oh, like four. We've had There's four more new than businesses. That. Oh, no, four since Fabric the Fabric store. Oh, the, oh, the five. Yeah. Um, but no, it's growing. It, it's a main street that's working together. Uh, you know, it's only 547 people. We have no parks and recreation. We have no, uh, you know, we have no police. We have no, we have a mayor. Um, but we all just do these things ourselves. And our, and our harvest festival now draws about 12,000 people every fall. And we do it all ourselves. We, we rent the porta potties. We pump the porta potties. <laughs> Empty the porta potties. Yeah. 
and now some of the people who started coming at the very first Harvest Festival, and last year I think we have people from 22 states come to the Harvest Festival, and some of the people come every year, so it's like a reunion, you know, for them, and now they volunteer, so they will sign up to pick up trash at the end of it. They do the tours of our farm. Do the tours of the farm, and... Um, Can I tell my, I'm going to tell my favorite Harvest, Harvest Festival story. So the first Harvest Festival we had, that was the one that they showed on television, um, where there was, uh, you know, we decided to, to throw a festival, and uh, I dressed up as William Beekman. I was ringing a bell on the highway, trying to get people to come down. And we got up about 500 people, and we were all, everybody was really pleased, and it was a sweet, sweet time. And then, so they filmed that, and then the show started airing, um, and the next year, about 5,000 people showed up, and that was season two. You saw what happened. It was it really shut the town down because we didn't even realize that what an impact the show was having because did, they didn't even air the show in our area. So our neighbors didn't even had never seen the show, and all of a sudden these 5,000 people from <laughs> Norway and Australia and all these people are coming to Sharon Springs, and um, they. I remember the, our first sign that something was happening was we drove into town, and at the top of the hill that goes into the town. Somebody had called the Department of Transportation and they had one of those big flashing signs that they have at, at car accidents. <laughs> and they did, wheeled it in and it said, Caution, Harvest Festival. Caution, Harvest Festival. So made it. It, then when we got down into town, we only had one and a half restaurants then. And we had, by noon on Saturday, we totally ran out of food in the whole town. And so there were 5,000 people there from all over the world. And around 1 o'clock in the afternoon, I saw people walking around with uh, hot dogs and hamburgers. And I asked one of them, I said, Where'd you get that? Because I was hungry. And they said, there's a guy up on the hill. And it turns out one of the villagers had driven 40 miles to the nearest grocery store. He bought all the hot dogs, all the hamburgers, all the coleslaw, all the potato salad, all the buns, everything. Bought the store out, brought it home, grilled on his front yard, and gave it away. Because he did not want all these people coming all, from all around the world to go home hungry from Sharon Springs. And I always say, that's the best example of... He never even thought about charging for it, but that's the best example of why our town succeeds. Wow. Do you have a question, sir? Yeah. A couple questions, if I could. Uh, there's a, a store, a wine store that sells some cheese here. It's called The Wine Source. They had a real nice goat cheese from a gentleman who was in New York City and, and uh, I guess, moved 45 miles to the north. And, and so I don't know whether you do any goat cheese, and I'm curious about bread, whether you make your own bread or what do you do in that area. Thank yeah, you. We, do ma we don't make our bread to sell, um, but we do make our own bread at home. Um, we don't grow the wheat. We, we grow or raise about 80% of all the food that we personally consume, so we raise the cow and the pigs and the ducks and the chickens and the rabbits and sheep and uh, everything. But... Um, <clears throat> The cheese, we our signature cheese is a cheese called Black, um, and that's a 60% goat, 40% cow. Uh, we get the cow milk from the farm next door, and um, the way that cheese came about was that, you know, we first were like, okay, we're going to do a goat milk cheese. Well, we were thinking like marketers in the city, you know, like what, what's, where's the niche that we're going to fit into, and so we didn't want to do a chev. Uh, as our first cheese, because you can get great chefs in lots of places, and so we're like, well, that we're not gonna, you know, make pay off the mortgage doing that, and so we started researching aged cheese, how to do aged cheese, and um, <clears throat> so we first started making this 100% uh, uh, aged goat cheese. And we're like, why don't people make an aged goat cheese? 
uh, and you do see it, uh, there are a couple, but they're very, very rare. And we found out very quickly why you don't often see an aged goat cheese because one, um, goats are very low volume milk producers in comparison to cow. So by the time you age out uh, a goat milk cheese and you, all that extra moisture evaporates out of it, um, the price per pound for, you know, from the amount of milk that you start with just skyrockets. Uh, and then secondly, goat milk has a slightly lower pH than cow milk. That's what gives goat, uh, any goat cheese that earthiness to it. Um, and so when it starts aging out, it becomes really sharp really fast, and which, some, which is great. Some people love a sharp cheese. But we're like, no, we need a cheese that's going to sell a lot. So we need it to be as palatable to as many people as possible. And so then that's when we started blending it with cow milk uh, for two reasons. One, to keep the price down a little bit, uh, but also to mellow out the taste of it. Um, so we've tried bunches of different ratios and finally landed on the 60-40 ratio. And then like all the products that we come up with, we try to somehow reference history in them. And uh, so we went back through this, the history of cheese making. And one of the very traditional ways of aging a cheese was to coat it in ash. And so we're like, well, why don't, you know, why aren't people coating cheese with ash anymore? And you can sometimes see a goat cheese that has a vein of ash in it. Um, but no one is doing a cheese that you completely ash before it goes to the cave. And so we said, let's try that. And so we did. And um, that's what gives our cheese its black rind. And that's how it got its name, Black, B-L-A-A-K. Um, and we found out why people don't do that anymore, because it's incredibly labor-intensive and messy. Yeah. Um, but you know, we're, now we're the only people in the world who make that and do it that way. Um, and that's really how we found our niche with that cheese. And you know, every year, we're seasonal producers of it, so every year we have a waiting list of several thousand people who are waiting for it. Uh, because, you know, and that's why we try to tell all the farmers in our area, like, try to make something that no one else is doing. You know, if you're all making the same thing, you're not, there's not going to be a market for it. And um, so we always try to do something that's unique and special. We should also mention that the wine source is one of our big supporters here at the Pratt. So um, thank you to them. Thank you. Now, um, just to wrap it up, I just want to ask you guys, where do you go from here? What's next? Oh, gosh, that's a good question. Well, we, you know what, we, we, we never know. Like I said earlier, we, we have no idea where our business is going. We've, we've really just trusted um, that if we've had the right intention going in, the right thing seems to come out. So we went into farming out of desperation, as we said, because we need, we, we need to make money, but we also wanted to fit into our community and make our community stronger. And so I, we always go back to if it's working for our neighbors, it's working for us. So that's... That's our that's our business plan. Mm -hmm. And in Chicago, we're going to Chicago next. <laughs> and we understand you guys are going to be back here in Baltimore for the Baltimore Book Festival. In oh, that's September, right. So. Yes. yes. Yeah. yeah. So, on behalf of um, the Pratt Contemporaries, the Pratt Library Board, our CEO Carl Hayden, we want to thank them, the fabulous Beekman boys, to be here at the Pratt tonight. Also, as a reminder, that the Ivy Bookshop is selling books outside, so and they'll be signing books uh, as you leave. Thank and we're fine again. getting photos with anyone who wants a photo. Thank you all very much. Thank you to the library. Yes, thanks for having us. Thank you, Pratt.